The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Reading from 2 Peter, chapter 3. This is God's own word as we read verses 1 through 9. Peter writes, This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And this is the word of God. There's rarely enough of this thing, except when there's too much of it, hanging on your hands. It's something that races like the wind when you're on vacation, but crawls like a tortoise when you're in the dentist chair. It wrinkles your face. It puts gray in your hair. Once you use it up, you can never get it back. And I'm talking, of course, about time. William Shakespeare said, once I wasted time, and now I find it wastes me. The question before us today is, will we ever get ourselves in step with the timing of God in our lives and our universe? Will we ever be on his schedule and his clock for his divine plans for our world, both small and great? Peter wrote to early Christians who were struggling with the timing of God in their lives. They knew certain promises that God had said would be accomplished, and most importantly, the promise that Jesus Christ would appear again in history. Back in uh, 2 Peter 1.16, we first heard about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. That is, about his second coming. And then Peter took a chapter of chapter 2 of really 
we have to say, if you can say this about Scripture, unpleasant material as he condemned false teachers. And now he's not so much looking at false teachers as he is about a wave, a cloud, a fog of skepticism that is within the church and that church people have to hear about the promises of God and particularly about the coming of Christ. Was Jesus wrong to predict that he would come again in power and glory? It certainly was a topic of discussion in the early church, as many said, well, where is it? We've been around here several decades now since his death, and we believe in his death, we believe in his resurrection, but where's that coming? It hasn't happened. And here, of course, are we 20-plus centuries later, and we ask with even more strength, was he wrong to predict that he was coming again? We haven't seen it. Where is it? And underneath this skepticism, too, was, was a layer of doubt of people because they knew that this coming of Christ was a coming for judgment. It was a coming to hold people accountable for their lives and their sin and to bring judgment upon him, for God has appointed his son to be the judge of all the earth. And so the scenarios we have in the rest of the New Testament of his coming is coming to a throne of judgment. And people say, oh, I don't really think people are necessarily going to be judged. God is merciful. He'll be kind to us all. The question becomes, has God been slow in fulfilling the promise of Christ's second coming? Is he slow about any promise that he makes to us? If he's off course with this greatest promise about Christ coming again as final king and judge, perhaps all his lesser promises are in trouble as well. Well, the first point I believe our text raises for us today could be said this way. The worldly scoffer is a person who never really knows what time it is. The worldly scoffer is a person who never really knows what time it is. Peter wrote about Christ's return, and he wrote about it as something conclusive and decisive. It is called elsewhere the day of the Lord, the end of days. It was and will be, as God brings it to pass, the absolute climax of all human history. And Peter's saying, I know what you folks are listening to, and I know what you've told me makes you anxious. You're hearing scoffers say, where is this coming? Ever since our forefathers died, everything goes on in this world just the same as it has since the beginning of creation. To the secular world, the idea of a supernatural interruption of world history, a conclusive end to things, is just nonsense. People sneer at this idea. I understand, I think I've mentioned this before, that in the newspaper world, the journalism world, uh, they have a, a term that is used for the biggest possible headline that will ever appear on the front of a, of a newspaper, and they call it the second coming font. And that is when a newspaper imagines it will announce the coming of Christ. Of course, the biggest, at least they acknowledge it's a very big event and it needs the biggest headline, the second coming font. Well, we aren't going to have to wait for newspapers to announce it when it happens. The scripture says every eye will see him. Amazingly, somehow, people across the whole earth, believers and non-believers, 
People in Peru and Alaska and Nigeria and China are all going to see him. I don't know. I can't explain to you how that will happen. But it is announced by the promise of God that this great event will come. Now, what we have, though, are believers being discouraged because people are muttering and attacking and and saying, oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. People who seem to have as their belief system that there is simply an unchangeable physical world of molecules and energy operating within a closed system by natural laws of some kind that always has operated, uniformly operates, and always will. And it doesn't need a God to interrupt it or adjust it or do anything to it. Those who believe in this system in an absolute way, you may have learned in science class, the belief in it is called uniformitarianism. Uh, Basically, the worship of molecules and energy that natural law operates everything and no power from outside will break in. Uniformitarianism had a great spokesman uh, just a generation ago. He's died some time now, but particularly in the 1970s and early 80s, Carl Sagan, a scientist from Cornell University, an astronomer, was quite popular as a spokesman. With his, he wrote a best-selling book called Cosmos and had a TV show called the same title, And I was intrigued by Carl Sagan as a spokesman for the pure matter view of things. I was intrigued and not amused by the way he opened the first page of his book, Cosmos. It was absolutely a deliberate, deliberate assault on Genesis 1-1, as Sagan wrote this as his first sentence. The cosmos is all that is, all that ever was, and all that ever will be. Well, Carl Sagan knows better now, and he has known better for some time. His religion was eternal matter, matter and energy, working inflexibly, always the same, never-ending, not no beginning, no end. I have to say his system simply required too much blind faith for me to follow it or adopt it. Well, Peter reveals that that's basically what these secular scoffers are saying, and they're saying it willfully. Notice how Peter says uh, in verse 5, for example, that they deliberately overlook. It isn't a case of ignorance. It's a case of willful opposition to the idea of a sovereign God ruling his universe and able and ready to interrupt that universe by his miraculous power as he would choose so to do. So this person is ignoring plain facts. They have a kind of selective amnesia. And Peter says, look, let me give you just one thing to illustrate. He said they, they absolutely forget that God not only created this world and brought the swirling waters that were formless and, and void to, to become a universe, to become a solar system and a planet, but that within this planet... He says in in chapter or verse six that God in the past deluged with water that world that he had made and all in it perished, except of course, we know he's talking about Noah, those who were with Noah. So he's saying, look, they're already overlooking a judgment, an outside event that has come in and greatly interrupted the world as it is and pretending it didn't happen. Now here's a, this isn't a sidebar, but a little thing that interests me very much. 
I don't consider myself an expert geologist or even scientist of any kind, but I've studied enough about what we call flood geology to know that the claim of a very vast widespread flood in the day of Noah is a very credible thing according to geology and the study of fossils and the layers of the earth. There are many places where people can demonstrate that uh, on, a, on a hillside or even a mountainside rather high above a valley where, where you would say, well, there was never an ocean or a sea there. There is a layer in the earth of sediment that contains sea fossils, fossils that would only be found in an ocean or a great lake or certainly not, you know, the kind of animals or creatures that would be found on mountains and in, in forests. And this can be demonstrated. Go check out your geology on this if you want to. There are all kinds of fossils found in odd ways like that. People say, well, what was this layer of mud that, of course, later turned to sedimentary rock and containing false fossils? What's it doing a half a mile above the valley where you would expect perhaps there was a, a river or a lake there? There is, in other words, fossil evidence, geological evidence that well supports the idea of a catastrophic flood in time past. I'm just going to leave that. Go check it out if you want to. But, you know, what Peter's saying is, look, people don't care that the evidence is there. They deliberately overlook it. And yet, we find that those same people who would cry to us in the name of science, they would say, oh, give me science. I need science to support what I believe. Well, those same folks would come along and say, oh, but I believe in macroevolution. By macroevolution, we mean the idea that a species, a division of creatures called a species, can change into and morph into, cross the lines and enter another species. Now, you would say, oh, yes, I remember some big debate about that, and I know that Christians think differently about that, and so on. You know, there's, there is what we call microevolution, if I asked all the men over six feet tall to stand up in this congregation today, I would illustrate microevolution because 200 years ago, a same-sized congregation would not have had anywhere near the number of men that tall or that robust. We have changed because of nutrition and other things, lack of diseases today. Our, our species has changed a little bit. That's microevolution, very believable. But macroevolution says, no, no, one species, an animal species, gradually develops through changes and becomes another species. Well, if you're a scientist, if you're the people who are scoffing in the day of Peter, you want to say, well, I've got science to prove that. And I say, okay, good, let's talk about it. Bring out your science. Show me the transitional fossils of one species turning into another. If you know anything about this subject, you know they don't exist. They simply do not exist. And the science of macroevolution says, well, we just know they have to exist somewhere because the alternative would be believing the stuff that those Bible people believe, and that's too ridiculous. Isn't this amazing? We can say here with the flood, the deluge that Peter's talking about, there is scientific evidence, but people will ignore it. Over here, with another theory, hypothesis, of macroevolution changing from one species into another where people would certainly want to parade their evidence, they have no evidence to parade. None. Absolutely none. I defy you to bring it to me and show me. It does not exist. 
And Peter's saying, what kind of absurdity is this? They deliberately ignore evidence that is there and choose to believe something that is without evidence. The mocker says, God has never interrupted events of this world before now, so why should we believe he would do it in the second coming of Christ? And we say, what do you mean he's never done it before? Check it out. God has done it before, and he will do it again. Jesus himself said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, God is going to bring a catastrophe upon people who were unwilling to acknowledge what he said, what he predicted, what he warned he would do. Why? Because of their total spiritual disinclination to believe the revelation of God. The materialistic skeptic never honestly knows what time it is on the clock of history. Well, secondly, Second Peter 3 makes another assertion here, and I word it this way. The eternal God exists outside of time and yet works within time. I had you read the 90th Psalm for a call to worship because of the, the things you, if you think back now to what that was saying, how it was talking about God above and beyond history and yet driving and designing and working in history. You think of a passage often at Christmas time we raise Galatians 4.4 that tells us that Jesus was born on this earth in the fullness of time. Obviously, that had a meaning to God in the mystery of God's timing of things. Christ came at the right moment and for exact reasons with the exact ancestors that God wanted him to have. And there are other ways that that's indicated. Remember Jesus speaking to Mary, his mother, as she pushed him at the wedding of Cana and said, you, you know, go there, they need wine, help them out. And Jesus said, woman, my time is not yet. Come, slow down, Mary. This isn't God's time for a full revelation of who I am. Later on in Gethsemane, we heard Jesus pray, Father, the hour has come. His sense of timing was saying, Father, I believe now it is, and I'm trying to face this thing. And then, of course, on the cross, he cried out saying, finished. He was clearly aware that something was happening that was on God's timetable. Second Peter 3.8 is what helps us understand here that God Uh, It says the Lord with him one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. That doesn't mean God is careless about time or time doesn't matter to him. It means that he stands above it even while he works within it. With With the Lord, Psalm 90 said, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. I always am helped by this very simple illustration. I'm a simple man. The simple things help me. You may have been to a Fourth of July parade just recently. I didn't happen to take one in this year. But imagine two children going to a Fourth of July parade, and the crowd's so big that they're jostled and they can't find a spot to get a good view. And in fact, they're, they're kind of pressed in, and they're behind an eight-foot wooden fence. And well, the little girl of the pair finds a hole, a knot hole in the fence. So she wriggles up and gets herself in position to look out through the knot hole. And there she can see the tuba going by, and she can see 
the Girl Scout troop and one float as it comes into the picture. One little fragment at a time, she sees the parade. Well, her brother, more adventurous, sees that there's a tree there and he's able to get his way up the tree 20, 25 feet above so that he, the fence is no impediment to him and he can look back a hundred yards and see the bands coming well before they get to their spot and he can look this way and see the fire trucks as they disappear into the distance this way. He's got the whole panorama from his spot in the tree. Well, I think that's a way to think about ourselves versus the view that God has of time. We experience time and events and history the way the little girl does with the knot hole. We see a little fragment. We didn't know it was coming. Oh, look at that, a woman with a big feather plume in her hat. Oh, look at that, a man beating a bass drum. But we don't see it coming. We see it for a moment, and then it's past. God the Lord sees history from the beginning to the end. He knew where the parade first formed up and where it will conclude, and he knew who was in the first band and who was in the last band, and everything there is to know about that parade. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We don't have God's vision of time and history, the point is, except as God might reveal it to us. Well, in giving us a promise like the return of Christ, he does reveal to us. He says, look, this is going to happen. You can count on it. In fact, right now, I can see the time coming when Christ will return. Maybe tomorrow. The minute I say that, you say, no, no, it won't be tomorrow. Well, why not? Why not? Do you have a reason why not? God knows the beginning from the end. And he sees time. Isaiah, the prophet, spoke for the Lord God when he said in Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than yours. I'm above the parade, folks. You need to listen and hear that I am the God who sees history as a whole. And if you're struggling somehow with God's timing of something that seems to be happening, either in our world, if, you know, if you're saying, oh, Lord God, please put a clamp on this guy in North Korea. We sure don't need him right now to throw the world into nuclear disaster. Or, God, my job, I lost my job. Are you aware of that? What are you going to do? I, I need money. From the great things down to the small things, we think... God isn't in control because we have the knot hole in the fence view. But our God is above the parade. And he knows all of time. He's out of, outside of it, but he works within it. And so thirdly, we come to be able to say this, that the text wraps up in verse 9. By the way, a, a verse that is often a controversial verse, though I've never quite understood why. 2 Peter 3.9 brings us to this summary point that God always acts according to what we may call mercy standard time. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now let there be a class in our church where the good, biblical, sound, well-defended doctrine of divine election is being taught 
and uh, it, the question and answer time comes, I can almost guarantee you, because I teach on election in every new member's class we have, and if there's time for Q&A, somebody says, Pastor, what about Second Peter 3.9? I say, what about it? Tell me what your problem is. Well, it says God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So that supposedly denies divine election. I never figured out why or how. But, well, it says God wants everybody to come to repentance. How can there be election? How can some come to life by God's design and others not? Well, it never says that everyone is going to reach repentance. If you believe that, then you believe in what we call universalism, that everyone is saved, that no one is ever condemned for any reason. If that's what you're, you're selling, check out verse 3-7 right above there, which says that some people will perish. It speaks about the destruction of the ungodly. So in the same passage, it says there'll be a destruction of the ungodly. How can it say two verses later, everyone is going to be saved? It doesn't say that. It says God's wish, God's desire, God's heart emotion, if you can say such a thing, is certainly that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. God's original desire would have been that everyone would come into fellowship with him and know him eternally. Who messed that up? We did, folks, not God. It's our sin that brings people to perish so that if God does nothing, that's what happens. People perish. If he does not, draw some by the Holy Spirit to awaken from their spiritual deadness and come to life. What this text is saying, it's a big area here that I don't have time to, to fully explore, is that the people God has destined to come to him will definitely come. He's patient, not wishing that any would perish, but that all all certainly means all those designed to come will come. The opportunity will not be cut off. And, and you know, 50,000 people left waiting at the gate who were supposed to get in, like a rock concert where they sold 50,000 tickets, too many, and, and everybody thought they were going to make it, and boom, sorry, you know, all the seats are full. No, that's not what this is talking about. It's saying that the Lord in his mercy will extend that opportunity of mercy as long as needed, as long as his individual, we call them inscrutable, meaning we can't peer into the mystery of it. His inscrutable plans and desires are fulfilled. When they're fulfilled, be sure of it, Christ will come. In Matthew 24, Jesus himself predicted that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, at some moment that God knows, then, when some completion is reached that God sees as his completion, then the end will come. Romans 11.25 talks about the fullness of the Gentiles who must be gathered into the kingdom. When will that last grain of gospel sand drop in the great hourglass of God's electing grace? We can't say. We're not given that knowledge. 
Only the Lord knows. But we, we have to bow in humble recognition that if it looks like a delay, if it looks like God somehow forgot about his promise, folks, that's only our knot hole in the fence view of things. Certainly God is not off schedule. Certainly God is not delayed. The apparent delay is not a sign of divine failure. It is a, simply means that God is still working his designs. Romans 9.23 says, What if God did all this, that is, all his saving de- designs, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for his glory, even us whom he has called. God is working with his called ones. He's holding open the gospel door for his called ones. He's working on mercy, standard, time. Now, if God is on time with these grand designs and with the return of Jesus Christ, don't you think this God can be trusted to be on time with the small designs and the small purposes of your own personal life and and destiny and family and all the things that you are concerned about before him. If he can do the great things and be trusted, he can certainly be trusted with the little things in your life. If you think of yourself as waiting for God to do something, I urge you to turn that around and understand that God is waiting for you to trust him, to submit in obedience before his promises. And right now, while Christ is being preached around the world, it might seem like evangelism is not not moving that strongly. Church growth is not that strong in America today. But boy, you should be educated a little bit and learn a little bit about what's happening in world missions and how portions of Africa, portions of the Far East and other places, the gospel is racing And souls by the thousands and tens of thousands are taking hold of Christ. The story of what is happening in China is absolutely exciting. It's like a first century story as people are holding close the gospel of Jesus and realizing its promises and rejoicing in it in a way that so many Americans are just blasé about. Right now, while Christ is still preached, It's God's day of opportunity, and it's a day God will hold open as long as he needs to, as long as he designs to. Paul wrote it in 2 Corinthians 6. Now, right now, is God's acceptable time, the time of his favor, the time of his mercy. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time for you to trust him and believe his promises, for he is utterly trustworthy. Father, help us. We probably lapse sometimes into this camp of scoffers. Even as Christians, we say, how could it be that my nice daily routine, my nice suburban life all well-ordered, and I know I'm going to get groceries today and see my friends on Friday and go to a club meeting on Wednesday, How could my nice little life ever be interrupted with a great coming of Christ in power? Lord, forgive us for our skepticism. Forgive us for when that mocking tone has ever entered our own belief system. 
Help us to bow before you and trust you, to know that you're exactly on time with what you're doing. Give us a trust to look to you and believe you that we might greet Jesus when he comes with a heartfelt hallelujah of the greatest joy. We pray in his name. Amen.